All right. Good morning, everybody. So we are now in week seven of our Genesis series, and today we're looking at the story of the flood, which I realize is not a real Christmassy story. Uh, I meant to say this last week, and I forgot, so <clears throat> I'll say it this week. I really hope that no one's too disappointed that the sermons during this Advent season aren't Christmas-themed. Uh, just so you know, I love Christmas. I'm really, I'm not a Grinch at all. You might remember that uh, last year we did a four-week series on the Nativity. But this year I just thought, I bet a lot of us would find it refreshing to come to church during the Christmas season and have the messages be a little less predictable. Um, if I'm wrong about that, email me, let me know, give me some feedback. Um, but that was just my sense. So we're going to stick with Genesis uh, throughout the rest of this Advent season. But we will be having a Christmas Eve service, uh, as Keith announced. Uh, it'll be at 4 p.m. And at that Christmas Eve service, there will be no talk of the Nephilim or the flood or anything like that. It will be as Christmassy as possible. So I hope you can join us then. And actually, you may have noticed Christmas Eve falls on uh, a Sunday this year. So we're not going to have a morning service. We're going to have the evening service instead at 4 p.m. Um, but for now, we are talking about the flood. Now, before we get into the text, I want to acknowledge that the flood story presents us with some pretty big questions, some pretty tough questions. And I would say that you can classify those questions into two different types. So one, would be, one, one type would be practical questions. So these would be questions like, is this story reconcilable with modern science? Um, you know, what, if, is it possible that this flood was local instead of global? Uh, how did Noah get all those animals on the boat? Could you actually fit that many animals on a boat like that? So questions like that, practical questions. The other category of questions is what you would call the moral questions. So those are questions like, how could a loving God do something like this? Just flood the whole earth. Um, is it just for the animals to be punished too? Uh, questions like that. Now, I have decided that this morning, I am going to focus on the moral questions, not the practical questions. Uh, I don't know if that's disappointing to anybody, but that is what I've decided on. But I do want to say just a little something, generally speaking, about those practical questions. And, and what I'm about to say could really apply not just to the flood story, but to, you know, Genesis in general. Um, <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to say. Uh, as with all things, not all things, but many things in Scripture, there are people who are devoted followers of Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are seeking to live lives that are surrendered to him, who have different answers to the practical questions raised by the story of the flood. Um, if you start studying it, you will discover that. Uh, and I think we need to be respectful of that reality. Okay? And what I want to say, generally speaking, about these kinds of questions is we as Christians are called to care about the truth. Right? Jesus said, the truth will set you free. We should care about what is true. And that means that we should not be dismissive of Scripture, and we shouldn't be dismissive of science either. Okay? And what that means, if we're, if we're not being dismissive of Scripture or science, is that 
as we refuse to be dismissive of Scripture, we need to recognize that our interpretation of Scripture is not always correct. Okay? And as we refuse to be dismissive of science, we need to recognize that scientists don't always get it right. And what that means is that sometimes we have to live in the tension when we feel like science and scripture are at odds with each other of not really knowing for sure sometimes whether it's our interpretation of scripture that's the problem or if it's the science that's the problem. Sometimes we just have to live with that and live in that tension. Um, so that's what I want us to keep in mind if we are struggling with the practical questions raised by the story. Um, and one of the reasons I don't want to focus on trying on addressing all those practical questions during this sermon is because if I did that, I don't think we would ever talk about what I think the story is really trying to, com to communicate, which is truth about who God is and what our relationship to him is supposed to be like. Okay, so we're going to be focusing on what you would call the theological aspects of this story. Now, if you are personally bothered by those practical questions and you want to talk to me about it at any time, email me. I'm happy to, to talk about those sorts of things. Um, but today, I want to focus on those questions. What does this story reveal about who God is in our relationship to him? Okay? So, if you have your Bible, open up to where we left off last week. Uh, Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. And uh, before we get into the text, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the snow, even though it can be kind of a pain to get it off of our cars. Um, uh, we thank you um, that we're here, uh, those of us who made it here. And uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, you, would, you would honor uh, our ability to get out of bed on a cold Sunday morning and clean off the cars and get here, and I just pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word, um, that you would uh, speak to us through our fellowship with one another, and that you would just show us more of who you are and uh, how you want us to live in this world that you've created. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. And then if you skip down to verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. All right, so I said that I would not be focusing on the practical questions, but the moral questions. And I think that these verses help us to answer the biggest moral question that's addressed by the flood story, which is that question, how could a good and loving God do something like this? Flood the entire earth. Um, now, that might not have been a question that was really on the minds of the ancient readers of Genesis, but I do think it's a question that arises in our modern day minds. Um, I, I worked in campus ministry, as most of you know, uh, for six years. Uh, 
before I went to seminary at UConn, and I talked to a lot of skeptical people, and the flood story was often used as ammunition against the idea of a good and loving God. <laughs> people would say, oh, it just comes up, just six chapter in the Bible, you know, the flood story. Um, God floods the whole earth. You say that God is so loving and gracious, like, well, God seems kind of cruel and mean to me. Um, and so I think that in the cultural context that we are in, it's really important to ask that question. How do we, how do we respond to that objection? And so uh, I, I believe that when we look at the flood story carefully, we don't find a God who is cruel, but we actually find a, a good God, a truly good God. And so what I want to focus on this morning is, is five reasons that I have to offer for why this story reveals to us a God who is truly good. All right. Uh, so, if you're taking notes, uh, this is the first one in your list. The flood story reveals a God who is good because his judgment is a response to evil. His judgment is a response to evil. Remember verse 5 said uh, that man's wickedness was so great that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You would have a hard time coming up with a more total statement about the wickedness of humanity than that, right? Every inclination, only evil, all the time. Every, only, all. That's really messed up, right? You know, God doesn't send the flood to people who are basically well-meaning, you know, people who make mistakes now and then, but their hearts are in the right place, right? No, these people are seriously messed up. And one of the ways that the total wickedness of the human heart was, was revealing itself in the pre-flood world was through violence. Remember verse, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And I think this is important to emphasize, especially in our modern context, because although in our modern context we have a lot of trouble with the idea of God's judgment, we also are very offended by the idea of violence. Violence is upsetting. And so if you're struggling with the idea of God's judgment, or you're trying to share this with somebody who struggles with the idea of God's judgment, I encourage you to recognize that the people who are being judged are people who are violent, right? Okay, they're people who have no respect for life. Remember, a few, a few weeks ago, we read the Cain and Abel story, and that had the story of the first violent act, the first murder. Cain killed his brother Abel. And then we saw through Cain's genealogy that his violence led to more violence, and things got worse and worse, and it culminated with the example of Lamech, who was this guy who was not only violent, but he bragged about being violent. He bragged, I'm way more violent than my, my ancestor Cain. You know, if Cain is avenged seven times, I'm avenged 77 times. And also, hopefully, if you, you were here last week, you remember uh, that we talked about the Nephilim. And we had some trouble identifying exactly who the Nephilim were. That's a very tough uh, interpretive challenge in the text. But uh, remember, we decided that whatever they were, they were violent bullies. They were violent people. Uh, and the Bible says that they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. So they were the celebrities of their age. And, and, and what we're being told is that before the flood, there were a lot of people like Lamech, and people looked up to the people who were like Lamech. And they were like, yeah, those people are cool. Those are people that we admire. See, what was valued in the pre-flood world what the text is telling us was valued, was brute strength, 
Okay? Not compassion, not tolerance, not love, not patience, not humility, but just the ability to, to get your way through force. And the people who were able to do that, the Nephilim and the Lameks of the world, those were the people who were looked up to, those were the people who were admired, those are the people that everyone looked at and like, oh, we wish we could be like them. They're awesome. So that's one reason why the flood story tells us that God is good. Because God's judgment isn't arbitrary. Okay? It's on a humanity that is filled with violence, every inclination of their hearts, only evil all the time. Second reason that the flood story reveals the God is, who is good is because God's heart is broken over this situation. God's heart is broken. You know, I think that one of the reasons that people often perceive God as being cruel in this story is because they think of him as having this attitude like, oh, you rebellious humans, I'll show you. Ha ha ha. But that is not the attitude that's described here at all, right? Look at verse 6 again. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. His heart was filled with pain. You know, not rage or annoyance or anger, but pain. You know, this is not describing a God who's like some sort of cosmic divine version of Lamech. Oh, you rebellious humans, you take vengeance 77 times, I'll take vengeance on you 777 times. Like, no, this is, this is not a God of violent swagger. Right? This is a God who is sad, who's heartbroken. His heart is filled with pain. He doesn't take delight in bringing this flood. This isn't what he wants. He's doing it because it's what has to happen because of just how corrupt and wicked humanity has become. But you don't, you don't have any sense here that it gives him pleasure. Right? It grieves him. And in this verse, verse 6, I think that's where it's most clear. But I also see this, this pain in verse 7, where it says, God says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. You hear those words there? Those words are not necessary. Of course we know that God created humanity, right? But it's like God is making it personal. It's like he's saying, oh, my, my handiwork, you know, my art, whom I have created. I will destroy what I have created. And, and I hear in those words just this deep sadness because when God created humanity, it wasn't for the purpose of destroying humanity, right? God had way better plans for humanity th than that. In the first chapter, we, we heard him say when he created humanity, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that moves along the ground. Like, he had this vision for humanity that was just of ever-increasing flourishing and, and beauty. And now he's faced with this deep, profound corruption, and it grieves him, you know? He, he, this is not what he wanted. His plan was for us to be the kings and queens of creation. Now, you might say, okay, well, maybe, maybe God's being fair to humanity, okay? But what about the animals? I don't know if that's, that might not be a question that's really on our, our minds, but I, it, it comes up for me, you know, why do all these, these animals uh, get punished? They don't deserve to die, right? Well, that's a tough question, but 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer an answer. This is my, my best guess of, of making sense of this. We have to remember what we learned back in Genesis 1, right? That God gave authority to human beings over the animals. He said, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and every creature, right? And what that means is that God set things up so that human beings were supposed to be like kings and queens in their relationship to the animals. And ideally, we were supposed to be good kings and queens over the subjects of the animal kingdom, right? Now, if a king or a queen faces some sort of judgment, right, that has effects on the subjects of the kingdom, right? And so I think what we're seeing here is God honoring the created order that he's made. He can't bring judgment upon the kings and queens of creation without that also affecting those who are under their authority, right? Um, you know, if, if, if the authority that God had given human beings didn't have negative consequences on the animals, then it wouldn't, we never actually would have had the authority in the first place. It would have been meaningless. Um, but I think what we're seeing here is God honoring the created order that he made. All right. So the third reason why the flood story reveals a God who is good is because the God in this story is so much different from the gods in other flood stories. This, I didn't really know much about this, and uh, I was able to do some research on it this week, and it was really fascinating to me. Did you know that in the cultural context that Genesis comes from, which is the ancient Near East, that there are other flood stories? And did you know that they have many significant similarities with the Genesis story? Significant similarities. So there's what's known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's the Enuma Elish, and there's something that I've never heard pronounced out loud, so I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but the Atrahasis. And um, all of these, these flood stories have some remarkable similarities, parallels to the biblical story. But what's super interesting is that they're, they're unique. Uh, or, I'm sorry, that the Bible story is unique and different. And uh, you have to imagine that if you were someone in the ancient Near East and you had any familiar, familiarity with these flood stories, that when you heard the biblical story, what would really stand out to you are the differences. You know, if I say to you, little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds, curds and whey, along came a dinosaur and sat down beside her and scared little Miss Muffet away, the thing that stands out to you is the dinosaur, right? Because you've probably heard that nursery rhyme before, but it didn't have a dinosaur before. Okay, so the biblical story has some very key differences that would have, you know, stood out in the mind of an ancient Near Eastern reader. And I think the biggest difference has to do with why God sends the flood. So in the other flood stories, do you know why the gods send the flood? Okay, there's not, there's not one god, there's multiple gods in the other flood stories. They send the flood because they're annoyed by how much noise humanity is making. And because they, are, um, they don't like that humanity has had too many babies. Which is interesting, because that's in direct contrast to the Genesis account, where, Gen where God keeps saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? So imagine if you're someone living in that cultural context and you're used to stories about the gods sending a flood because they're annoyed with human beings. How strikingly different would this conception of divinity be? Right? 
that this is a story about a God who sends a flood because he hates evil and violence, right? That, that the flood is sent by a God whose heart is pained by the corruption in his creation. If you were used to stories about the gods killing everyone for making too much noise, you wouldn't see a cruel and capricious God in this story. You would see the complete opposite. So that contrast there is remarkable. Fourth reason, and this one obviously, well, this one is very obvious, but it warrants being said. God saves Noah and his family. Right? This is not just a story of judgment. This is a story of salvation. Um, now, <clears throat> Noah and his family are not perfect, and we're going to talk about that more next week when we talk about after the flood. Uh, but the text is clear that Noah is different from the rest of humanity uh, in that time. Verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So notice that phrase, walked with God. That's, that's the same description that was given to Enoch, that special person in the genealogy that we talked about last week. And what does it mean to walk with God? Well, it means to, to keep company with God, right? It means to listen for God's voice. It means a lifestyle of paying attention to God. And Noah, although he wasn't perfect, he stood out in this respect in his generation. He paid attention to God. He walked with him. And so I think we see evidence here of God's goodness in saving Noah because we see that God is able to look at Noah as an individual, right? He doesn't just lump him in with the mass of corrupt and violent humanity, but he's able to see Noah as an individual person and respect him in that way and have favor on him, right? Just as God is able to see each one of us as an individual. And then lastly, and this is closely related to the point I just made, but the flood story reveals a God who is good because he is relentlessly faithful and committed to his creation. Relentlessly faithful and committed to his creation. Now, why do I say that? Well, here's why. Theoretically, God could have just completely hit reset on creation, right? He could have just chucked the whole thing out and started over from scratch. I mean... God can create things out of nothing, right? So he could have just thrown the whole thing out, started from scratch, started new. He could have said, boy, Adam and Eve, they really blew it, and things have just gotten worse and worse since they did, and then there's that pesky serpent and all the angels who have follow are following him. You know, I think I'll just blow the whole thing up, and I think I'll just start from scratch, because it's easy for me. I can just create something out of nothing. Now, God does hit reset to a certain extent with the flood. That's true. But it's not a total reset. Right? There's still continuity. Because Noah and his family are still there. The animals are still there. He's still working with the same physical material that he started with. And think about it. If God really is capable of just creating things out of nothing, why bother to have that continuity? Right? Why not just rip up the whole old thing and start new? The only reason make, that makes sense is because God is faithful, right? God is committed. He's, he, he loves and cares his creation too much to just throw it away. God is not like a husband who is in some way disappointed by his wife, and he says, well, I guess I'll just go find a new wife. Right? No, he's faithful. 
And part of what that means is that he keeps his promises. Now, those of you who have been here every week are probably getting tired of hearing me go back to this, but, but we have to remember the promise that God made in chapter 3. Uh, after, uh, after humanity sinned, he said to the devil, in the form of the serpent, he made a promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head. And what I've said the last couple weeks is the point of this promise is that a particular descendant is going to come through the human genetic line, born of a woman, and that descendant is going to crush the devil. That, that descendant is going to defeat the power of sin and, 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 and death. Now, if God had just killed the whole creation, if there was no continuity at all, if he had just gotten rid of the whole thing, this promise couldn't have been fulfilled, Right? Because the offspring of the woman would be totally gone. The human genetic line would be destroyed. But he didn't do that because he's faithful. He's committed. And at Christmas, see, I'm getting Christmas in here. At Christmas, we celebrate the moment that part of that promise was fulfilled. Because at Christmas, we celebrate when that particular descendant who would crush the devil was born. Born of a woman. Born of the Virgin Mary. God kept his word, and he remained faithful as to creation, even when that meant giving up his son on the cross. You know, that's how relentlessly faithful our God is. That's how unwilling God is to just chuck it all out and start over. He would rather die than do that. That's faithfulness. The second thing that I want to talk about this morning, this is shifting gears a little bit, and we're going to do this pretty quickly, is two things that we can learn from Noah's example. Uh, so we're going to read another passage. This is uh, starting in chapter 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. And then if you skip down to verse 19, it continues, uh, You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. So, Noah is given this list of very specific instructions, and what he's being given is just this huge task, right? Crazy task. Can you imagine trying to collect all that timber in the ancient world? That would be crazy. Um, I'm sure a project like that would, would have taken years and years and years. But as far as we know, Right? Noah doesn't complain. He doesn't talk back. He just does it. And in fact, the story makes it a point to say twice, God, uh, Noah did everything that God commanded him. Twice it tells us that. And so, uh, here's what I think we need to be reminded of this morning. Lessons from Noah's example. We should be faithful to do what God commands, even if it's hard, and even if it takes a long, long time. A lot of the things 
that God calls us to do, they're only accomplished through years of steady obedience. You can't just do them overnight. You know, Noah can't build that huge ark overnight. It takes a long time of steady obedience. Uh, there's a book by Eugene Peterson, the guy that did the paraphrase of the Bible, the message, and I love its title. It's, it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the reason that he calls his book that is because he believes, and he's right, that there are some things that just cannot be achieved quickly. You know, we live in a, in a culture that wants instantaneous results all the time, um, and there's just some things that can't be achieved that way, including a deep relationship with God. That's something that can only be cultivated over time and over, um, you know, a significant period of time practicing spiritual disciplines. It can only come through a long obedience in the same direction. So, um, you know, and I was thinking about how in our culture we value instantaneous results, and because of technology we often gain instantaneous results. And I think it's important for us to allow Noah to remind us, as Eugene Peterson also does, that God calls us to do the things that don't generate the instantaneous results. Uh, he often calls us to this long obedience in the same direction. And, like with Noah, uh, it might take a long time for us to feel like the effort that we're putting in is uh, going to pay off. But once the floodwaters of life rise and we actually have a boat that can sustain us, then we realize that that time was worth it. All right, the second thing that I think we need to learn from Noah's example comes from the last part of the flood story. Uh, we're told that Noah and his family enter the ark seven days before the flood starts. The rain falls for 40 days, and then 110 days later, the boat reaches a mountain where it rests. So the boat becomes stationary after 157 days, after everybody's been in there for 157 days. But it takes another 221 days before they actually get out of the boat. Um, so if we start reading in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, here's what it says. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Um, so this is, this is 320 days in at this point that they've been in the ark. And at this point, Noah actually sees that the ground is dry. The surface of the ground was dry. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been in that ark with just my family for that long and all those animals, I'd be like, the ground is dry. I'm getting out now, right? I would just be itching to get out. But he doesn't do that. Um, and it says in the next verse, by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Okay, so the previous verse said the first day of the first month. This one says the 27th day of the second month. So it's been about 60 days. It's been 60 days since Noah looked out and it was like, oh, looks like it's dry. 60 days before then actually coming out of the boat. Can you imagine having to wait that long? You know, I'm reminded of when I was a kid, 
another Christmas reference. Um, on Christmas morning, I remember I'd be really, really excited to open the presents, and I would get up unreasonably early when it was still dark out, and I would go down there and I would sit in front of the tree, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to open the presents until my parents got out of bed, and even worse, my grandparents. And that could take a long time, right? So I'd be sitting in front of the tree, and the anticipation would be killing me, and I'd be thinking, the presents are here, I'm ready, I've been waiting all month for this, right? Let's go. Now, I just had to wait a couple hours, but if I had to wait 60 days, I never would have made it, right? I would have been tearing into those presents by the afternoon. But no one is family. They wait for 60 days, even though it seems like the present of the renewed creation is ready to be open. Now, why do they do that? <clears throat> well, it's because they're waiting for God to say, okay, you know, now it is time to come out. And so what I think we need to learn from this example is we have to wait and trust God's timing. Now, I know that God doesn't usually speak to us in as clear of a way as he spoke to Noah, right? Um, he doesn't usually say in an audible voice, okay, now it is time for you to go to grad school. You know, now it is time for you to get married. Now it is time for you to change jobs or, or move. Usually... Uh, that's not what, what happens. Maybe it happens sometimes, but I don't think it's the typical experience that, that we have. So if we're waiting for that audible voice from God to tell us, okay, now, now it's time, we may end up just waiting forever and you know, not actually making a move. So I, I'm not saying that we should just be in a holding pattern until we hear the audible voice of God. But what I'm saying is God's timing is not always our timing. <clears throat> and... When we're waiting for something in life, we shouldn't try to force that thing to happen prematurely. Even if it feels like, now is the time, okay? Sometimes when we get tired of waiting for something, we resort to sin in order to try and make whatever we want happen, to happen, you know? For example, say you really want a promotion at work, you've been putting in uh, good effort for a long time, you feel like nobody's noticing you, um, you might get tired of waiting on that promotion and then try to force it to happen by cheating in some way or by speaking negatively about your coworkers in order to put them down and make yourself look better. Um, that's an example of not waiting patiently on God. Another example would be, you know, say you really want a friend or a family member to come to faith in Jesus, but they have told you explicitly, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested in that. Um, well, waiting on God in that situation is going to mean not forcing that conversation. It's, it's going to mean waiting for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's timing to create an opportunity to have that kind of conversation. And you might think, well, I just, I don't understand why we can't just talk about it now. Well, Noah probably wondered, why can't we just get out of the boat now? Right? Sometimes we have to wait. Noah did wait. He waited for the moment when God made it clear and said, now is the time. And that's a good example for us to follow. So, in conclusion, the God of the flood story is good. And when we trust in his word to us, we have a safe place in the storm. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are not the sort of God who brings judgment 
gleefully. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that your heart is filled with pain uh, when human beings go astray. And Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to your promises and to your creation. And because of your faithfulness, Lord, we can trust in Jesus and we don't have to be afraid of condemnation. Lord, I pray that each one of us would have that long obedience in the same direction, that we would build that flood that can, build that uh, boat that can withstand uh, the floods of life. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you continually speak to us through this story throughout this week and uh, just help us to see uh, the things that your Holy Spirit wants us to recognize. In Jesus' name, amen.